We're opening Isaiah 53 one more time, one more time before we go back to our study in Matthew. And it surprises me that we're still here. And yet at the same time, I think I know why. I think we need to understand the inner dynamics of why people believe and why people don't believe. And this has been a big, big study, getting armfuls of Bible and pulling together the theme of unbelief and Israel's unbelief and asking why the most likely candidates in all of Scripture, all of history, to believe in the Messiah didn't see him coming. When he came, they didn't see him for who he was and is, and they didn't ultimately believe as a full, ingathered nation, as ethnic Israel, they won't believe until the very end. But Scripture says that they will. I believe promises are going to come literally true. For a literal 144,000 during the tribulation will literally believe 12,000 from every tribe. That's delineated in Revelation 7. And then there are predictions where when the Lamb of God comes in the clouds, which Daniel chapter 7 predicts, literally Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 validates that when they see him whom they've pierced, they're believing So something is mounting, something is building to that end. But I'm asking the question that Isaiah 53 verse 1 asks, which is, why didn't they believe when they should have believed? Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who's believed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's this sentiment of being incredulous. Why we didn't believe was the sentiment of this lament and these phrases. And this is a big study. And it's the kind of study that, I mean, I'm no Apostle Paul, and certainly I'm not someone skilled like Christ was to teach. But whether it's Paul or Philip did this, um, Stephen as a deacon evangelist did this, And others, they pulled together all of redemptive history to make a point in a sermon. And that's what this series has been, just trying to lay out the grand scheme of things from Scripture in terms of understanding belief and unbelief. And I want to take it from here to to right here for you right now, because there are people in this room, children, teenagers, adults, seniors, and some of you perhaps aren't believing yet. You're not all the way there. You might be not far from the kingdom. Some of you have longed for others in your family to actually believe, for everything to click, for things to come together, for there to be spiritual synapsing taking place. And that might be an awkward thing to say, but it's not awkward for a preacher of the gospel to say, because my burden is for everyone to believe. And so this is a big study, but it's a very, very potent application. I was sitting there singing and I was kind of scanning in my mind's eye, maybe looking a little bit in my peripheral vision at you thinking, there are people here who need to believe or people here who need to get their arms around what it means to be a believer or to answer the question of what it takes to genuinely believe. I know that I was raised in a Christian home, in church, always there, always hearing, always listening, and for a time as a child and a teenager, not believing. An unbeliever in the midst of hearing truth 
And the question on everyone's heart that knew me and knew my state of heart is the same question as this. Why wasn't I believing? What was holding me back? Well, I think we're going to just reintroduce this study and then we're going to plumb the depths of Isaiah 53 to answer this question. First of all, if you've been following the big study, we were answering the question of why people don't believe by saying before the Messiah came, Israel should have believed. They should have seen him coming. Verse 2 of Isaiah 53, I'm sorry, the second part of verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. First of all, notice that this is Israel speaking in the past tense as believers. And so the projection of Isaiah's prophecy is projecting all the way to the end, to the last day. This is something that has not happened yet, where Israel, all of them will come in to faith and believe. All who are here on earth will believe, will repent and believe at the very end. In that moment, this is when they're saying these words. So they've not spoken these yet, but they're speaking in the past tense going, we should have seen him coming. He was the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord in their mind was the arm of strength, believing he would be the victorious leader who would dominate the nations. That's true. And that was predicted. But the arm of the Lord is also this tender young plant, this little baby in Bethlehem who was lying in a manger, the one for whom the shepherds saw as believers in the room. They're like, this is Messiah. The one whom the Gentile wise men came and said, this is the two-year-old. This is the Messiah. We believe in him. The one whom Simeon and Anna in the temple dedicated. And they said, this is the Messiah. This is the answer to the Jews and to the Gentiles, quoting Amos. It's amazing. There was always a remnant that was believing. The disciples believed. The 12 believed. The 120 in the upper room believed. And then, you know, Pentecost came. But before that time, that the Jews, by and large, as a nation, were rejecting Messiah. They didn't see him for who he was when he came. Remember, he said to Philip, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You're looking into the face of God. And we learned last week, uh, point two, when Messiah did come, Israel should have believed when he came. And we saw that there were believers like the two on the road to Emmaus who were, who were trying to get there. They hadn't yet believed. And Jesus resurrected comes and meets them where they are. And Luke 24 explains that they're sad and Jesus is engaging them. And then Jesus preaches a whole Bible sermon using all the law and all the prophets. And I tried to unpack some of that for you last week, indirect and direct prophecies that were predicting and verifying and validating that it was all about Jesus. And they had these two on the road to Emmaus had all the details, even to eyewitnesses of the tomb being empty and they're coming back sad. They didn't fully grasp it until the scripture resonated in their hearts and they were warmed in their hearts. They were burning inside. It says literally, didn't our hearts burn within us as they were hearing the scriptures and things were connecting and they believed and Jesus vanished. (laughs) And so, and so they're representing what Israel should have done. They should have believed. They're not going to believe until the end. Point three of this study, when Messiah comes again, Israel will believe when he comes again. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is the ultimate Old Testament 
I would say that with um, Ezekiel 37. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 is the ultimate gospel picture where you see what happens in the heart when someone believes. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, speaks of the new covenant. And this is what's going to happen in the hearts of all of Israel. We're living in the new covenant age now. We're out of the old covenant. We believe that Jesus changes hearts. We understand that. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. The heart of stone is replaced with with the heart of flesh. That's Ezekiel 36, I think. That's the new covenant. And then Jeremiah 31, he says in verse 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Um, And then later, my covenant that they broke. But verse 33, a new covenant, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. From the least to the greatest, verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. This is the gospel from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, that prophet. It says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun by light by day and fixed order of the moon and stars and light by night, who stirs up the sea and the waves that roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. name. Now he's solidifying his commitment to save Israel here. Verse 36, if this fixed order departs before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel um, shall cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, if the sun, moon, and stars, if all that just gets disordered, then I'm going to break my covenant. Verse 37 says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying, what the Lord is promising is there's no possibility for God to abandon his chosen nation. It would be as, you know, as, um, as much a chance for him to abandon Israel as it would to be measuring infinity. It's a quote from the gospel according to God, written by MacArthur. But I'm just trying to reiterate that God's covenant for his people was rock solid all along. One of the questions that I was asking as I think this through and preach it is, why did he do this? Why did God allow for Israel not to see the Messiah at first? Why didn't they see him when he, when he came the first time? What is the answer for that? Because certainly they're going to see him in the end, Zechariah 12, 10. When they look on me, whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him. They'll mourn as a child, they'll weep over him. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him. This is Jew and Gentile, but speaking of the Jews, even those who pierced him, that's the Jews, and all the tribes of the earth, that's the Jews, will wail on account of him. And Revelation 7, 1 to 4 speaks of the 144,000. I would just ask you, turn over to Romans 11, just to give us just one more running start context for um, why this is all happening in the way that it is. Romans 11, verse 11, look there. This is Paul's version of asking and answering the question, why did the Jews not believe? What is the purpose of all of this? Why did God's plan play out this way? Verse 11, so I asked, this is Paul, did they, the Israelites, stumble in order that they, may, they might fall? Was this all just to set them up so they would be knocked down? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let's stop there. Full stop for a second. All of their unbelief was to allow us to believe as Gentiles. 
We are here at Anchorage Grace, at this local church, as believers, because of this plan, the way God orchestrated it and designed it. He, in other words, had people who were of the, of the ethnicity of Christ, miss Christ so that Gentiles would believe. And you see this theme over and over. There's a turning away from the Jews to the Gentiles in the Gospels and specifically in Acts. That's why Paul was called an apostle to the Gentiles. Why is all of this? It says, so as to make Israel jealous. So Gentiles are believing so that Israelites go, oh, I want that too. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, in other words, the gospel going out to all the nations and Gentiles believing, look at this, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The full ingathering. At the end, when Jew and Gentile are all believing, how glorious will that be? It says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. We're all part of this ministry. Let's not forget about the Jews. Let's not forget about God's promises to ethnic Israel. And let's glory in the fact that we've been engrafted into that vine, into that plan. Romans 9, 10, and 11 speak of that. And then there'll be a full in gathering, a full inclusion at the end. It's all part of God's plan. Now, applying the broad to the specific, what's happening in the life of that loved one that you're praying for right now that you so desperately want to come to Christ Why are you believing and that person not believing? Why was my older brother a believer and I'm watching him believe in front of me as a teenager? Why was that happening? Why was my heart hardening? And then why did my heart soften? I don't know, but God is working all of these plans together for people to come to faith in Christ. And we have to be faithful to give the message and trust that God is going to work this out in your life. Because I know there's a big picture theology teaching that I'm giving you, but I want it to apply specifically to your life as you pray for loved ones. Why do people stay blind and why do people open up? We're going to look at this. Go back to Isaiah 53. This is, this is the repentant speech, okay? This is Israel as a nation in the end coming to the altar, and this is what they're saying. They're lamenting. They're, they're in sadness. This is an expression of faith. This is who they've come to believe in. That's why it's written in past tense, because this is a prophecy that is going in the future. Isaiah is saying it in 700 BC. He's been warning all of the Israelites and Judah specifically of the Babylonian captivity to come. In 722, there was a Syrian captivity that came to the Northern Kingdom. Northern, Southern Kingdom split. And he's down there in the Southern Kingdom. And it's about, you know, probably less than 100 years before the Babylonians are gonna come in, swoop in, take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and that group and go to captivity. So that's what's happening. And he's warning them to repent of sins, but he's also in that warning, he's giving a prophetic window into when they actually will repent in the very end. So he's putting them as exhibit A and saying, you need to repent now, but this is what it will ultimately look like when you're standing there This is a parent saying, you know what? You're rebelling right now and I wish that you would repent. But one day after I'm gone, you're gonna feel sad for the fact that you didn't repent till later. But praise God you did. This is that repentance speech right here. Isaiah 53, we've already read. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's who's open to the gospel? 
For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't the power leader. He wasn't somebody who we would just naturally go up to and say, this is God in the flesh. The wise men saw it, the shepherds saw it, Anna saw it, Simeon saw it. We said that before. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a little little shoot, little shoot out of the ground, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty. Nothing was striking about him. Nothing was um, evidently beautiful about him. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected. Now, this is the cross. He's gone three years through ministry. He's vindicated himself with miracles. He's taught. He's been despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows in ministry. You know, in scripture, we have it clearly recorded that Jesus wept. So we know that he, as full human, um, displayed emotion over the death of Lazarus, right? And he's weeping not because he doesn't know he's going to, bring Lazarus back to life, but he's weeping over the sadness of what sin brings in the life of the world. He bore that burden and felt that weight of sadness. And there's nowhere in scripture that records Jesus laughing. Now, there's a lot of humor in the Bible, and so I feel like we we can say that God is the author of humor and laughter and joy, but in Jesus' ministry, there was a great sobriety about him because he was clear on the sadness of sin. And what he was there to do. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, because he knew he was the sin bearer. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. On the cross, he was slapped, his beard was pulled out, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was scourged, he was bloody, he was disfigured on the cross. That's the picture of what we have here. Again, 700 years before Christ was born, these are very specific details about what was going to happen to him as an adult man dying on the cross. Then verse 4. This is a turning point in this lament because this is where we were moving from a confession that we didn't see him for who he was before he came, the arm of the Lord. We didn't We didn't catch the fact that this little tender shoot was the Messiah. Then we bloodied him on the cross, a confession there. And now verse four is the turning point for the application of the cross in the life of a believing Jew or any believer. Uh, This is the confession we'll all make at Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of us will be there. We're all making this confession. This is the same confession of Revelation 4 and 5, that the creator is the savior, the the lamb is the lion. It's the same thing. But I want you to see this. Look at this. Surely, this is the exclamation point. This is the meaning of the gospel. What has he done? He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's put it on his back. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's another confession. Here we put all of our burden on him as our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, right? And we did it all while we were blaming him for being there. You know, give us Barabbas, crucify him. He's evil. He's the promoter of false religion. He's not the only way. He's not God. Put him on the cross. He's on the cross because he's smitten by God. God is punishing him because of what he's done. And 
what is beautiful about this verse is it's the turning point in the Jew's mind where he's going, he's not on the cross because of what he's done. He's on the cross because of what we have done, right? It's the great exchange. It's our sins for his righteousness. It's the great switch up. He's perfect. We are imperfect. He's God and, and sinless and perfect in man. And we are sinners who need grace. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what's been called penal substitution. Look at verse five. But he was wounded. It wasn't his fault for being on the cross. He willingly went there. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With the stripes we were healed. There's so much there. He's wounded for the wrong things that we have done, not what he did, what we did. The transgressions, when I crossed the line willingly and said, I'm going to willfully sin, that's a transgression. He's wounded for that. Who's he wounded by? It says he was crushed for our iniquities. Who's the ultimate one who is conducting this execution? It's the divine wrath of God Almighty was crushing his son. You say, where do I find that? Well, look at verse 10, skip down. Yet it was the will of the capital L-O-R-D, which is God, God the Father, to crush his son, to crush him. It was God's will. You say, this is a bloody text. This is a gruesome text. And this is a violent text. But guess what? Overarchingly, you know what this is? It is a loving text. When John 3.16 is quoted for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is God the Father and God the Son in triunal um, inter-Trinitarian fellowship face-to-face. First um, John says prostomtheon, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with one another in full complicit agreement to carry out this plan. Yes, yes Gethsemane. Yes, he's doubting. Yes, he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. They were in full unity. And Jesus went as as Hebrews chapter 12 says, the race set before him with full joy in his heart because he knew what he was going to achieve, which was the salvation of our own hearts. So this is the substitutionary atonement moment of this text. It's him being wounded crushed and it's all in the name of love for us for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace people don't want to talk this way about what happened to Jesus on the cross because people want to make it where God couldn't be responsible for this but they they call it divine child abuse and they say there's no way that that could happen but in God's economy and his plan he saw fit to give his son and his son willingly laid his life down for us greater love has no man than this and he lays down his life for what his friends it was all part of God's plan for Christ to be crushed for us to be saved to be brought into a place of peace where we are reconciled with God Think about it. You've seen it on um, little track diagrams where you have us on this side, dead in our trespasses and sins. We're the fools who are saying in our heart, there is no God. We're rebelling. We're at enmity with God. We're, we're 
headed to hell. We're on the wide road that leads to destruction. We deserve death. We deserve the penalty. And then you have this chasm between us and God, and we can't get there from here. All we are is we're headed right down into an eternal hell. And then the cross is dropped right down in the middle that is the perfect bridge for us to get across and make it into heaven, make it into fellowship, to have peace with God. Think about it. You have Jews who've who've been in a stupor, in a state of rejection. We rejected the idea of a a Messiah that would come as a lamb. We rejected that one. We rejected him when he was here. We've rejected him through the centuries and now we are embracing him and finally believing. Not only are the Jews the most likely candidates to have ever believed, they're the most amazing recipients of grace to actually believe. It's incredible. This promise is being fulfilled in this Speech, this confession of repentance. This is all of our testimony. We've been made right with God. We're at peace with God, verse 5. We're reconciled to God. We can have the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension because we've come to a new disposition, a new understanding of what life is all about and that our guilt and sin has been forgiven. We're healed. It says by his stripes we're healed. This is not a physical pronouncement of healing in the name of the gospel. This is being healed spiritually. We're made right with God. Spiritually, our sins have been taken away from us. So it's the picture of perfect healing. Ultimate healing comes in heaven. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. This is the personalized testimony. We have turned everyone to his own way. The word sheep here, the picture is um, appropriate. There's a guy who uh, was a missionary kid named Philip Keller who became a a pretty prolific author. He's with the Lord now. He was born in Kenya. He was born in the wildlife. He loved agriculture and, and, you know, as a missionary kid, he ultimately lived in Canada. But he said this about sheep. He said, sheep do not just take care of themselves as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, um, endless attention and meticulous care. They're called stubborn and stupid. We love our dogs. We do, but sometimes they can be very stubborn and very stupid. You say come and they don't come. They, they want to do their self-will. They'll do their own thing unless Judy is telling them to do what to do. But if I'm telling them they're stubborn and stupid, but... The reason I bring that up is we should not be too arrogant to say, to excuse ourselves of this comparison. We're left, left to ourselves. We're just going astray. And that's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. That's what, that's what the Israelites are confessing. We're sheep who've gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse seven. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Now Jesus is the lamb. Jesus in humility, he's the lamb led to the slaughter. What does that mean? That means when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Look at Matthew chapter 11, just real quickly. This is a key moment at, it's not Matthew 11, Matthew 27 rather. Matthew 27 is the key moment where Jesus is standing before Pilate and he's, he stood before Herod, he's standing before Pilate and he's not answering to defend himself, it says now Jesus, this is Matthew 27, verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, 
You have said so. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Why is this point important that Jesus didn't respond? We know he talked. He talked on the cross. He made confessions. He quoted scripture. He did say minimal things to Pilate. It is as you say, things like that. But he didn't defend himself. And why is that important? It's because it shows us Christ's heart. He went willingly to the cross for you and me. He willingly died for our sins. He was decided to go as a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before his shearers. He was silent to open out his mouth. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, which is Israel, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. I want you to turn over to one place where these verses are actually quoted in an evangelistic encounter in how the Lord saved someone from their sins by this quoting of Isaiah 53, and that's Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So look over there with me. You know, Philip was one of the the chosen deacons who was an early evangelist in the church. He, like Stephen, was putting his life on the line. He was in Samaria with with Peter preaching the gospel, and the Lord um, translated him or supernaturally put him in a place um, that he would come right in contact with the Ethiopian eunuch. It says in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza to this desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. God was already working in his heart and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. How do you know when to witness to somebody? It's when they're reading an evangelistic section of scripture out loud in your hearing and you say, do you know what that means? That's what you do. That's what you do. We shouldn't overcomplicate evangelism. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join us this chariot. You say, well, how do I know if the spirit is called? If somebody's reading the scripture and needs to be, that needs to be explained, the spirit's telling you to go over there and explain it to them. That's how it works. And the spirit said to Philip, go over in verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like we just read, verse 7 of Isaiah 53. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, and so he opens not his mouth. This is the Greek translation of um, the Hebrew in the Old Testament, verse 33. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation, his generation, that's speaking of the Israelites, for his life is taken away from the earth? Now, verse 34 is curious. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I asked, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? The eunuch is saying, is this about Isaiah that we're talking about back then? Or does this mean something more in terms of someone else? This is an example of someone who is being opened in their mind and in their understanding to see more than just 
Okay, something in history, like reading the Bible like a history book. A lot of people have a clear understanding of the Bible. They'll read it like a history book. They'll read it like a good philosophy book or a how to live well in life book, but they won't see God in it. They won't see Jesus in it. And this person's eyes begin to open. And what did Philip do? He did a big Bible study. Verse 35, and Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. How do you win people to Christ? You take them to Bible study. You open the scripture. Go back to Isaiah 53. Let's finish this chapter off. Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man, that was Joseph of Arimathea, a Jew who believed in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What's going on here? Verse 10 actually moves from the past tense confession. So you have Israel that's looking and saying things in past tense going, we should have seen it. We should have seen it. He was... All of these things as our sacrifice for our sins. And then God's voice takes over in verse 10, partway through, and says, It was the will of the Lord. Um, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He takes over, he says, verse 10, it, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then it goes, it says, He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. What does that mean? That means that Israel's going to be saved. Verse 12 says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, Jew and Gentile are going to believe because he was poured out. He he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was all these things so that all could believe. What does this mean? Practically, let's make it real practical. You're trying to pray for someone to be saved. You're putting them in the context of the Bible. You're you're wanting them to join a Bible study. You're talking to them at dinner time about the Lord. You're praying with a child before they go to sleep at night. How do you get there from here? What do you do with all of this? Well, I want to just summarize all of this with two words. And the two words are sovereign grace. We have to trust God's sovereignty in this. God always had a big picture plan for Israel. And he had a big picture plan for the, the Gentiles and the nations and for you and for me. He was always in control all the time. And when someone is, becomes a believer, it's because God sovereignly opens their hearts and he does it by grace. We say, what about man's responsibility to believe? They believe or they reject and it's on them, right? Well, initially you have to yield to God's sovereign grace and say, God is in control of all these things, then you have to understand a single word that opens up how we're supposed to respond to sovereign grace, and that is understanding life in terms of God's providence. Providence, you hear that word provide in that, right? God provides opportunities to give the gospel. We just need to be available to that, willing to share in the Bible, reading the Bible enough, giving ourselves encouragement enough with friends that are Christians so that when the time comes and it's that moment we're supposed to preach or speak the gospel to somebody, you do it. When somebody has a question, you can answer them with the Bible, just like Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. 
You just have to be able to say, oh, I mean, Philip, literally, that's talking about Jesus. Let me explain who he is. That's really all Philip was doing in that amazing moment when the Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe, in other words, where, do, where can I be baptized? Sign me up. We just have to be open to those moments. And guess what? I assume when God brings people in your path that you're supposed to share Christ with them. I assume when new people come to church that that was all by divine design. God, I mean, there's a million variables that get someone to this church at this moment with this passage. And I assume that's all by divine design. There's people that are streaming in that are hearing the truth. There'll be people who are here who hear it on the radio. I don't understand how God works all those things out. That's his work. That's his will. But in those unique moments, don't deny yourself the moment to share Christ, to give truth, to explain scripture. And then leave the results up to God. I'll end with this. In Acts chapter 28, if you'll just turn over there, this is Paul's summary of his ministry in Rome. He ended up in Rome because he ultimately preached himself there, preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, in Judea, in those areas. And he went on mission trips, three missionary journeys. But then ultimately the Jews had had enough with him and they continued to want to prosecute him under Roman rule. Rome, that government saw nothing wrong with what he was doing. They were leery of this new sect called Christianity. But at the same time, they didn't want to prosecute him. But Paul eventually just said, enough's enough. I'm going to appeal to Caesar and all of this. And really that landed him under house arrest for three years, but was giving him a platform to preach. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, it says, After three days, he called together local leaders of the Jews. He's in Rome, but he's calling the dignitaries that are Jewish together. And they had gathered and he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Um, When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak to you since because of the hope of Israel. That's why I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters. Nobody's nobody's turning you in from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. And we desire, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, meaning Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, listen to this. This is why I bring it up. Here's the result. Here's the response to Paul preaching the gospel to them. Listen, verse 23. When they had had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So morning to evening, he's just doing the big Bible study from the scriptures, from the law and the prophets, just like Jesus did, just like others had done. This is what you do. You tie it all together and say, this is Jesus. What's the response? Look at verse 24. This is what always happens. And some were convinced You have believers. I assume when the gospel goes out, people will believe. There are elect in the city, as the Bible says. There are people who just come to life and they're convinced by what he has said. Look at this, verse 24. But others disbelieved. Some believe and some don't believe. 
And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. So some were believing, some were not believing. They leave. And Paul made this statement. And he quotes Isaiah 6. He says, The Holy Spirit is right in saying that to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. Their eyes, they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. What did he do? Did he say, well, some are going to believe, most aren't going to believe, so I'm going to quit. Is that what he did? A lot of people say, if you believe God is sovereign over salvation and it's now all up to us, then we're not going to do it. No, you give the gospel because, you know, God's in charge of the big plan. We give the gospel in light of that as God provides opportunities. What was Paul's venue? Well, I'm in house arrest and people can come to me. So I'm going to invite a prayer meeting and a Bible study with Jews and just connect with them. The Bible. What did he do? It says he lived there. Two years at his own expense, so he paid for it, welcomed all who came, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Where does the confidence come? Sovereign grace. God's the one that saves. So why do you do it? God provides opportunities. And we just are faithful and give the word. That's a rich, full life. That's a life statement. What was Paul about? Was he about fame, wealth, power? No, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Giving the gospel as people would listen. Watching people receive and watching people reject. And that's Christianity. Why do people not believe? Well, because they want their sin more than Jesus. But that's not up to us. We continue to preach truth and do it faithfully to the glory of God.